I've mentioned before the idea that there's some episodes which are just kind of forgettable. I have to admit, when I first saw that Crossfire was the next episode on the docket, I was like, which episode's that one? Usually if I watch like a couple of seconds of it, it'll click for me. Nope. Wasn't until uh, probably about the point when, you know, Shakara popped on. I was like, oh, right, right, this is that, that episode. This is an episode that focuses on Shakar, a character I don't care about and think was a mistake, and Kira, who's awesome, but their love story, which is ir- amazingly uninteresting. I will give Nana Visitor credence. She actually portrays someone who is in what I like to call puppy love very well in this episode. There's a, there's a degree of her performance that is just pretty much top-notch and, you know, gets across exactly what it needs to. I just don't care because, <laughs> for, for those of you not aware, this is the second of the Shakar appearances of three. <laughs> and again, it hasn't been all that long since Burial, and... <sighs> There's the other problem with this episode. It has nothing to do with Kira. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that. It has everything to do with Odo. And the fact that Odo's like, no, my love. I've said before that I think the Odo-Kira thing was a mistake. And I do. I think they could have gone different directions with it. I think they could have analyzed it in completely separate ways. And I think that at the very least they should have had her going after him. But instead we just have this. Now, I know not a lot of people agree with me on that, and it's fine, as ever. This is Star Trek. We can all disagree and still talk about it and discuss it like reasonable, civil people. But if anybody is very pro-Odo Kira, I would love to hear why, if you don't mind my asking. Obviously, we're not, like, there is no Odo Kiro. Odo Kiro? Odo Kira. This is just Odo lamenting her. And we do see how much this bothers him. Now, that's a feeling I remember, being so emotionally distracted by something that you literally make really dumb, stupid mistakes that nearly get people killed. I don't think I've been that far, but, you know, I'm not a security chief in charge of defense of someone who's someone's trying to assassinate. So in the beginning of the episode, there's this nice thing. We know that Odo has a bit of a routine. He's got that order thing going for him. And so he's got everything set up just right. He's got the Roctagino set up with the handle turned outward. Very important. And then she comes in, takes it, and enjoys it. And he's very pleased by that. Can I just say that I do like that? Not just the fact that it's part of his routine. One of the things I've noticed in my life is the little things that people do. Those tend to mean more to me than the big things. I mean, don't mistake me if, you know, someone has some horrible traumatic event to them and someone takes them in. That obviously means a lot. But if someone is just struggling and they, they get up and the other person has got them a little stuffed animal to make them feel better. like Just little stuff like that really touches me. And the fact that Odo goes out of his way to not only have the Roctagino ready to go the way she likes it, make sure that handle is tilted outward so she can just grab it swiftly and easily. Little details like that help. Because little details show that you care. So... There's this nice little bit where we find out that there's leaflets and vandalism about, screw the Federation, we shouldn't join the Federation, etc., etc. As I've talked about many times before, the Bajorans being anti-joining the Federation actually makes a lot of sense, even though it is, from a macroscopic perspective, incredibly stupid. But I do find that interesting in its own right, especially since apparently the Federation are still dragging their heels on this. Why the, like, remember, the Federation wanting Bajor to join the Federation was a thing before this show started. That goes back to the TNG era, before, you know, Emissary. And it's, we're in the fourth year here of, of that endeavor. 
Why does it take so damn long to join the Federation? Now, I know you're probably thinking, Laura, what's wrong with you? Of course it should take long. I mean, think about all the things that have to be hammered out. And yet, at the same time, A, we see no real evidence of that anywhere else. And again, that's actually contradicted in the future in uh, Star Trek Nine, but that's kind of a separate topic. You know, they were more desperate there. And B, as was pointed out by Shakar and Odo in this very episode, Bajor is still in dire straits. To put this into slightly different perspective, they are still only four years into recovery from a decades-long occupation, which has destroyed them culturally, religiously, economically, industrially, and militarily. Never mind their connections to the outside galaxy. This is the kind of thing that if they want to be part of the Federation, and indeed the government of Bajor and the majority of population are in favor of it, this is the kind of thing where the Federation Council should be like, yeah, let's, let's, let's speed this up a little bit, guys. Let's go, let's go. And apparently they even agree to that in this episode, which is even funnier considering future stuff. Anyways. Uh, so, Quark comes in to complain about the noise. Is this new? Like, did their quarters just get shifted? Or have they spent the last four years living right next to each other and Quark is only now starting to complain about it? I like to think, oh, yeah. Oh, I think they'll like to think they just shifted. And Odo himself implies that this was a deliberate thing to, to poke at Quark, so... I, I, I don't know, what do you guys think? Because this might just be a plot hole, I don't know. And then we find out about Suresh. Now, he's interesting to me. He's actually probably, to be completely blunt, more interesting to me than Shakar himself is. Suresh is the guy actually running the government, as I like to say. Because... <sighs> How do I phrase this properly? <laughs> Any sufficiently complex organization, one person just isn't going to be able to do enough of a job of making decisions and connecting to everything. They need adjutants. They need aides. They need advisory boards. They need ministers to help them, you know, adjudicate the government, right? I mean, that's just a duh, right? So I like the idea of this guy being the one who's actually politically savvy and actually connecting. There's a nice bit later on where he says, hey, that's Vedic such and such. And she's like, yeah, oh, I'm going to have to go challenge him to a, to a racquetball thing. And she says, well, he's really good. And he says, don't worry, I'm terrible. But it'll be a nice way to talk to him. That's smart. And I do like the portrayal of someone who's a politician who isn't a slimeball. It's a little bit common, for very obvious reasons, that fiction will portray politicians as slimebags. Shakar himself also, there's this nice little bit where Kira says, I hope he's learned not to mumble. You know, and, and even the aide is like, remember, enunciate, enunciate. Uh, funnily enough, I vary on how much I enunciate myself. I've actually taken lessons, believe it or not. I've talked about this before and learning how to do this. And it was something I had to learn when I started really working in theater as well. But I don't always enunciate because what I do is I just talk very naturally to you guys. So I hope I'm always understandable to you guys. Fingers crossed. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But I like this because it helps to showcase some of the different types of charisma. I've talked many, 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 many different times about how people can be charismatic and how actors can be charismatic and how certain things are charismatic when it comes to fiction. The idea here is that Shakar is someone who just sort of exudes charisma without deliberately being charismatic. It is his competence and his tendency to know what to do and to take charge that is what draws other people to him. And, of course, the Bajorans tend to be hero worshippers. They tend to venerate specific individuals religiously, militarily, politically, and hold them up above 
all other individuals. And thus, we lead to the situation where he was a war hero, and he is naturally competent. So it's a specific type of charisma. In other words, to, to use D&D type terms, his charisma is the kind of thing where his charisma score is actually probably low, but he has like a custom feat where if he does something, others follow. That kind of a thing, right? That's how I would probably gauge that, as opposed to someone who has a legitimately high charisma who can actively convince, like would go out of their way to convince other people to do things, right? That's the different perspectives. Anybody who's played Red Dead Redemption 2, it's the difference between Dutch and Arthur, right? Dutch is the person with the high charisma score. Arthur's the natural leader. Make sense? Anyways, so <laughs> there's this nice little bit uh, where we find out, they, they mention this thing, no, no, uh, we know that the true way has sent in this terroristic threat. We know that they're going to try to assassinate him. We're not sure why. In fact, by the way, this is the last time the true way is ever mentioned. Ever. Not counting Star Trek Online, obviously where it will become its own faction and will be someone who we will be pounding into the dirt for being pathetic, but, you know, whatever. Anyways, point being, this is the end of the True Way threat. And they're, they're defeated off camera, which I find hysterical, by Worf, actually. Not that I'm disparaging Worf, it's just funny to me. So, the threat comes in, and there's this great bit where she mentions, well, Shakar isn't going to capitulate. He's a terrorist, or at least he was a terrorist, and he knows full well, you don't bow to terrorists. At the moment that Cardassian started negotiating with them, he knew they lost. And that's true. I mean, there's a reason you don't negotiate with terrorism. It, it's it's basically a lose-lose situation to do that. I've actually talked about this before. Anyways, so then there's this nice little bit where Odo insists on bringing Starfleet in on this. This serves two nice functions. First of all, it gives Worf a decent presence in the show. And, you know... He's a little bit more himself now that he now that he's actually gotten past the point where they knew he was going to be on the show. But two, it shows how Odo's perspective has changed over the years. You guys remember when Odo was actually vitriolic at the idea of Starfleet officers being a part of his security staff? Or there being a Starfleet security officer on DS9? He threatened to resign over that. Twice. So it's nice to see that he's kind of moved past that. Then Worf and Order. Worf... Worf and Odo discuss order ah, as they debate, uh, you know, like, everything has to be exactly where it is. And Worf says, you know, if I close my eyes, you know, funnily enough, I'm actually kind of the same way. I think I've talked about this before because it's one of the reasons I sympathize with Odo so much. If I close my eyes right now, I could probably make my way through my room and find just about anything with only a couple of exceptions uh, fairly quickly and easily because everything has its place. That's actually kind of my rule. I don't allow it, I don't keep on, if I if I have something and I don't have a place for it, a place needs to be made for it, or I need to get rid of it. That's my own personal rule. So I totally sympathize with them on this. But what I find funny is they then start discussing how, you know, and you can't make people feel welcome, otherwise they'll just keep coming. And the only one who keeps coming is O'Brien, I need to make him feel unwelcome. <laughs> Jesus, Worf, I know you're a little bit of a loner, but tone it back a little bit. Funnily enough, this has been debated, but... It has been debated that this was the beginning of Worf trying to start his thing where he would, you know, eventually leave Deep Space Nine. But we'll talk about that when we get there. So, there's this nice scene. How many, okay, I'm, I'm going to relate a personal experience here again. I'm sorry, guys. I am an excellent driver. Now, that is not bragging. Uh, quite the contrary. It's more to the point that I am very proud of my driving record. But it's not like it's easy. Now, this is where, I'm, I swear I'm going somewhere with this, okay? So hear me out. This, is, this isn't trying to be like, I'm so awesome. 
Quite the contrary. I hate driving because it is so stressful. The whole time I am super tense and because I'm paying attention to everything all at the same time. I understand full, I've been run over by a car. I understand full well how dangerous driving is. I have seen plenty of accidents. Never been in one myself other than being run over. Behind the wheel, I've never been in an accident. But I have seen plenty of accidents. I, uh, I've had family who have been in accidents. I've lost family who have been in accidents. I am very, very tense and very stressed while driving because paying attention to absolutely everything all at the same time, right? Now, how does this relate to the episode? Well, imagine you're driving, like in my state, like, like I'm driving my sister or my mom, or someone I care about, so, which I guess, obviously, anybody can give me my car I care about, but you get my point, right? So now, all of that normal tension, all of that normal stress is just dialed up to 11. It's just, it's like there's a constant electric current running through me as I'm trying to be as absolutely on the top of my game as I possibly can. Now picture Odo. Odo is, of course, an excellent security officer. He's very good at it. And a lot of the reason why is because he's very observant. He has an excellent analytical mind, and he pays attention a lot. That is a long-established trait of his. And now he's protecting Shakar and, by contrast, Kira. And now he's just... <clears throat> and I, get so, I feel so much sympathy for uh, Odo, especially in the early parts of the episode, because there's this wonderful scene that helps to emphasize the exact feeling I'm talking about. The camera focuses on a single woman moving through the crowd. And Odo notices her, of course, because he's paying attention, because he's on the, on the ball. And she comes forward, and he's just... You can just see Odo, like, tensing and getting ready to lunge. And then she pulls out a kid. And then Odo's just like... <sighs> that tension is basically every minute of Odo's life while he is trying to defend Shakar, right? Or at least until personal feelings get in the way. And I just wanted to comment on how the episode does a good job, especially with the directing, but most especially with Rene Bergeron's performance as Odo. You can tell that he is just... He's doing the meerkat thing. My heart goes out to him there. So then there's the belt scene. <laughs> I'll actually talk about the belt scene more later, because it's actually more relevant later. So, once again, the feds are delaying. I've actually already, already talked about that. And then there's this really great scene, which is also horrible. Shikar starts talking to Odo about his romantic feelings for Kira. I could dissect that scene, but I'd rather just say this. I want you to picture that every word coming out of Shikar's mouth is exactly what Odo has already been thinking this entire time. I'm falling in love for her. I know it's close to her having just had a relationship. We've known each other for a long time. There's a lot of familiarity there. I don't want to jeopardize that friendship because that friendship's very important to me. Um, but I don't want to lose the chance to, to, to lose something that's extremely valuable to me. Um, but at the same time, if I tell her, maybe she'll take this as a sign that people care about her or comfort her. And I have no idea what to do. I have heard people debate for years that if Odo had just opened up to Kira earlier on, before Shikar, if Kira would have reciprocated. What do you guys think? As ever, love to hear your thoughts. You know, I feel like I say that a lot. Let me make something very clear. I mean that when I say that. <laughs> I have an old rule. I don't say something if I don't mean it. You know, you don't say thank you, in other words. You don't say thank you if you don't mean it. You don't say, have a nice day, 
unless you mean it. That was something that my mom drilled into me when I was young, and I still firmly believe in to this very day. So when I say I love hearing your guys' thoughts, I freaking mean it. So please, share your thoughts. Uh, so they have that whole scene, and Odo's just... Uh, and then Odo goes off and starts inspecting the thing, and Quark says, man, you're in a mood. I find it funny that of all the people on the station, the person who probably knows Odo best is not Kira, who's been working with him arguably longer, but Quark. <laughs> now, this is another one of those interpretive things. How much of a legitimate friendship there is between Quark and Odo. And honestly, it probably varies from episode to episode, and some of the writers themselves have disagreed on the specifics, so that probably adds to the problem. But I think this episode was a very definitive Quark legitimately cares about Odo kind of a thing. He could still care about Odo while still being a Ferengi. He could still still care about his business profits. He could still care about his bottom line and still care about someone else. It's not like those are mutually exclusive things, right? It just makes him not completely selfless, which is fine. That makes him a different person, right? But Quark just nails him about Kira and just right to the wall, accurately and immediately. And Odo just freezes up, loses his temper, and stomps out. How often have you seen Odo lose his temper like that? It has happened before, but it's damned rare, isn't it? Which, of course, brings me to the turbo lift scene. <laughs> Actually, it brings me... Sorry, next thing it brings me to is the is the morning cup of coffee scene, where he's running out, and she's like 20 minutes late or something like that. And he's got the Ractagino ready to go, and he's got the thing, and he's just waiting. She finally comes in, she's like, hey! And he's like, oh... And he's just waiting for her, and she's like, what? You're, you're rocked to Gina. Oh, I already had one this morning with Shakar. Listen, could you do this by yourself? I gotta go do something. Bye. Yeah. Now, what I find most interesting about that whole thing is I like the little things that show you care. But as a consequence, and this is something of a flaw in my own personality, I pay attention to the little things that show that you don't care. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't care. It just means you're not thinking about it. It didn't occur to you that sitting here and not taking the cup of Rectagino and being late to this meeting, which we basically just do because we're having time together as friends, they even mentioned that at the end of the episode, that that would hurt me. But, ah, no, it's okay. You were distracted. Go on, have your fun. You can tell I'm kind of on Odo's side in all of this, but I have something else to say about that, so let's, let's just get forward with that. Because the problem is, as much as I, I say I'm on Odo's side, that's actually inaccurate. There's no sides here. I sympathize with Odo. I empathize with Odo. But again, Odo probably should have been a little bit more honest about this, or given up, one of the two, before now. But I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. So Odo is so distracted, he lets the turbolift go before verifying, which is, well, that's indicative of how much this is bothering him. Like, he has reached the point of actual incompetence, which... Okay, that's a thing. I mean, Odo's not perfect. But that's also a very rare thing, especially for Odo. Even Sisko points that out, and Odo's like, don't worry, I'll do my job. And Sisko says, all right, that's all I need to hear. You could tell the amount of trust that Odo has built up, that Sisko's willing to let go of what is basically an example of gross negligence on Odo's say-so. But this is basically his one and only strike. He's got to make up for this after this. So then Odo says well, okay, I'm going to go talk to Kira and deal with this. And he finds that Shakar and her have, let's call it what it is, formalized their relationship. And that scene is also especially painful because she 
She is so happy and relieved. And she even gives Odo this really big hug. Again, Nana Visitor is a great actor, actress, and she does a really good job in this scene. You could just tell the relief on her face. Oh, Odo, I'm so happy that you're the first person to know. Because he is her best friend, regardless of romantic entanglements. And so she does care about him. She's just been distracted. Right? Again, she portrays that puppy love thing very well, but she also portrays someone who... Well, she isn't an idiot. <laughs> but again, I'll get more to that in a moment. I want to say something really quick. Several people, several writers and creators, uh, were upset about the turbo lift scene. They wanted to, to design the scene differently so that Odo couldn't just Superman his way out of the situation. Now, on the one hand, I disagree with that because Odo's a freaking shapeshifter. You've already given him the toolkit. If you restrain him from using it, then you're doing bad writing, basically. To explain what I mean by that. If you write in some way that Odo can't use his powers, like, I don't know, in the extremely insane possibility that he actually became a solid instead of a shapeshifter, then sure, at that point, you have removed his powers from the playing field. But his powers are out there on the, on the board. And if you just ignore them for no given reason, that is bad writing. Part of the reason here, and I've talked about this so, 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 so many times, especially in my Star Trek stuff, Star Trek has access to ludicrously advanced technology, which means they have incredible toolkits at their disposal. And I've said this so many times, the more you give tools to your protagonists, the more you take away tools from the writer. Because now you, the writer, have a more difficult challenge, or an incredibly difficult challenge, of challenging your protagonists when they could just solve so many problems. So I understand the desire to limit Odo, but again, he has these abilities. We're already there. This is not a, st a state of saying, oh, well, Odo can't shapeshift, because he freaking can. He has already done this multiple, multiple times. So him stopping the turbo lift is something that is completely logical. And in, in fact, is a very Odo thing to do. It shows kind of the logic of him being able to work through this situation. However... <laughs> I do understand and sympathize with the desire to not make it so that, you know, we can't challenge our protagonist, that any solution situation can be solved. But at the same time, I'm going to go back to some D&D GMing advice that I myself have given and have been given in the past. There are more interesting things you can do to your players than killing their characters. In other words, if you are so focused on the idea that there must be a threat of the weak which endangers the lives of the people, then in my opinion you're already starting off on the wrong foot when it comes to a writer for a regular show like Star Trek. There are things you can do that can have consequence and lasting effect that do not involve killing people. It's one of the things I've talked about so often when it comes to the red shirt problem. The red shirt died, so the situation is serious. No, it's not. The situation's stupid because a red shirt died. That doesn't mean anything. It's lazy. But if you try to have some kind of actual consequence, something that really affects the character or impacts them in some way, well, now we've got something, right? All of this, of course, brings me to the scene where Odo retires to his room. And this is a great little, little bit of continuity. I'm curious how many of you caught this. He picks up the potted plant, which used to be his old uh, bucket that he used to use. And it has the, pl the plant that Kira gave him in that bucket. And he smashes it against the wall as hard as he can as he destroys his own room. Quark comes in. I know you're in there. Odo doesn't respond, so Quark breaks in. Because <laughs> he can. And what ensues is probably my favorite scene in the episode. Quark, Odo, excuse me, 
has basically found out that he, he's lost it, that he is distraught, that he is oscillating between two points, neither of which he can reconcile. And the way Quark talks to him is perfect. I want to give a medal or a handshake or a bunch of money or something. Praise to the people or persons who wrote the dialogue between, between Quark and Odo in that scene. Also, I want to give praise to René Bergenois. He has a little bit of his hair distraught, hanging forward. He did that. There was actually a disagreement on the set, and they're like, what are you doing? He's like, no, I'm, I'm distraught. It's, remember, this hair is just part of him. It's disordered just as he is disordered, right? And it's a nice way of showing that rather than just having him be partially gelatinous or whatever. So good, good, good thought there. But the way Cork talks to him is brilliant. He talks about the man, manhunt pool. Great idea, by the way. Wonderful setting building. I wish we learned more about this manhunt pool. But again, Quark flat out lays out the reality of this. The very fact that a regular gambling pool, gambling pool exists, not to determine if you will get your man, not to determine if you will find your suspect, but when, says an enormous amount about the amount of trust, respect, professionalism, and competency that everyone presumes of Odo, of the reputation he himself has built. It does say a lot about the kind of person that Odo really is and has worked very hard to become. And I love how Cork talks through him on this. And it's like, you can't, look, listen, listen. Like I just mentioned earlier, you have two choices, Odo. Tell her or drop it. Now, that sounds harsh and cold, but let's be 100% blunt. I wish someone had given me that advice when I was a kid. I'm going to tell you the name of the girl. Natalie was her name. And I wish someone had told me, tell her how you feel or drop it. Now, obviously, my situation didn't lead to anything. It was just a, a crush. and I guess that would have been seventh grade or something like that. Seventh grade? Yeah, seventh, seventh or sixth, one of the two. But either way, the point remains... <laughs> you look at that kind of a situation and you have to choose because if you're oscillating between these two points in the middle, all you're doing is tearing yourself apart. And that's exactly what Odo's been doing. And that makes sense. He has no experience with this, just like I didn't back in seventh grade. The difference is I lived in a human society where that kind of thing is normal and I got those experiences and developed and, you know, I had the backing and infrastructure to be able to comprehend and move on from that. Odo's basically by himself. Who does he have to turn to to talk about this? Kira? Worf? O'Brien? No. No, ironically, the only person who is truly close enough and understands Odo well enough to talk to about this is Quark. And that's exactly what he does. And he comes in here and he just lays it out. You can't do your job. You, are, you have been the guy who always gets his man. And right now... You're not, and you need to decide. And what I love most about the episode is it plays it out as if he is going to tell her how he feels. But he doesn't. Instead, he does the exact opposite. He moves on. He lets go. He says, all right, I'm going to cancel our morning appointments. And the way she reacts to this, this entire episode... I've been thinking in the back of my mind, how does she not know? I mean, you could presume whatever, and of course she's kind of got the puppy love thing going on, but how could she possibly not know how Odo feels, right? 
forgive me for paralleling something weird here, but there's a scene in Return of the King, the film specifically, where uh, Arwen, Egwin, God, I can't actually think of her name right now, um, turns to Aragorn and says, do you not know? And he just kind of hesitates and looks down and is like, okay, yeah, I know, I get it. Because of course he knows, right? How can Kira not know? Well, I think this is more complex than simply a binary situation. I think she didn't know because she was so wrapped up in everything else. Odo doesn't really give a lot of signs of this normally. It's only really become a thing since Shakar came on board. Now, she was in the, the you know, <sighs> that almost adrenaline rush kind of a thing. I'm sure most of you know what I'm talking about. That, that like, I've just started dating someone and, ah, oh, everything's awesome. Puppy love, right? So she was just kind of riding the wave, so it's logical that she wouldn't notice until the final scene. And in that last, well, second to last scene, excuse me. And in that second to last scene, she's not riding that wave of puppy love. She's just talking to her friend. In other words, her brain's fully engaged. And he is pretty blunt about this. No, it's okay. I need to assign my time the way I need to do it. I need to focus on what I need to. And then, of course, he doesn't have the belt on. And she notices. In this scene, I think she picked up on it. I really do. And I credit all of that to Nana Visitor, once again. Because the way she reacts to him, she makes it's very clear that she realizes something is up. And that this is more than just a simple reassignment. That he is hurt by something, or he is distancing himself from her in some way. And she recognizes this. And it's a pretty good scene. I don't know how much of an impact it has on her. I mean, she goes right back to having her affair, I shouldn't call it affair, her relationship with Shakar, her puppy love with Shakar. But you could tell that she does at least recognize what's going on here. And then there's this really nice scene. Earlier, Odo says, I thought you were coming here as a friend. And Quark just says, nah. And then at the end of the episode, we find out that Odo is enduring three days of reconstruction to add soundproofing between his floor, you know, between his uh, quarters and Quark's. Do you think there's the real friendship there? Or do you think this is just part of their little game? I've heard many people argue both ways over the years. And as ever, I'd love to hear what you guys say too. I enjoyed this episode despite myself. Kind of below average from D Space Nine, but some really great character stuff between Quark and Odo and Kira. I'll see you next time, guys.